Good evening. There we go. I'm so pleased and grateful to have with us tonight Dr. Carl Walling. Dr. Walling is an alum of St. John's College who went on to get a joint PhD from the University of Chicago Committee on Social Thought and Political Science Department. He has served as an interrogator for the U.S. Army and has taught at Harvard, Carleton College, the Air Force Academy, and currently he's a professor at the Naval War College. Dr. Walling has written extensively on ancient and modern political philosophy, American politics, strategy, and the intersection of these fields. He's the author of Republican Empire, Alexander, Ham Alexander Hamilton on War and Free Government, and he's the co-editor of Strategic Logic and Political Rationality. Dr. Walling was kind enough to offer a thought-provoking Constitution Day talk this past Wednesday, and we look forward to what will surely be another timely talk this evening on the US, China, and Thucydides' many, many traps. We thank him so much for taking the time to speak with us tonight. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Walling. Thank you. I have to begin my talk with a disclaimer because I work for the federal government. Nothing I say today reflects the views of the United States government, the Department of Defense, the Department of the Navy, or the United States Naval War College. In most circumstances, uh, uh, that's merely pro forma because I assure you no one in the Department of Defense really cares about what happened 2,500 years ago. Um, however, uh, at the end of my talk, um, it will be difficult for me to tell the truth without saying some controversial things, and therefore I have to protect myself. Uh, indeed, I had to take leave uh, today in order to speak as a private uh, uh, citizen. Um, I also must express my gratitude uh, uh, to St. John's College, uh, uh, the tutors especially. Uh, I came to St. John's one day after getting out of the United States Army. It was hard to adapt, um, uh, but the tutors helped. Um, I must uh, express my special gratitude to David Bolton. I did not uh, get a chance to study with him at St. John's, but he did come to the University of Chicago for a year and led uh, uh, one of the most influential seminars in my life on uh, uh, Thucydides. Um, St. John's is about conversation, including conversation amongst books. So on Wednesday, I tried to construct a, a dialogue, so to speak, uh, between Thucydides uh, on the Peloponnesian War and uh, uh, the American founders, uh, the authors of the Federalist Papers especially, uh, an ancient book and a modern book. And I'll cut to the chase. I'm going to say about the ancient book that Thucydides practiced a kind of political science which was also a form of political medicine. Thucydides excels at di diagnosing political diseases, explaining their causes, and making uh, prognoses about their outcomes. Uh, one thing he does not do, or rarely does, uh, and only by hinting, uh, is make prescriptions about how to make the patient better. Uh, something that distinguishes modern uh, political science from the kind of political science that Thucydides practiced is it offers a lot of prescriptions. 
you could look at modern political science from the time of Thomas Hobbes, especially even to the present, as an effort to uh, uh, provide prescriptions uh, 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 to solve uh, uh, certain problems that uh, Thucydides first identified. Uh, on Wednesday, it was about Thucydides and the Federalist. Today, however, it's going to be about Thucydides and this book, Destined for War, Can America Escape Thucydides' Trap by Graham Allison. Now, uh, the first part of the title is meant to wake us up, <laughs> all right? Destined for War, that sounds scary. But the subtitle is really important. Can the United States and China escape the Thucydides' Trap? What is that trap? Well, in fact, there are many of them, but the trap that uh, Allison focuses on uh, is when a rising power, like uh, ancient democratic Athens, uh, poses a challenge to a status quo power like uh, ancient uh, uh, Sparta. It's like tectonic plates. They start moving and moving, and eventually you get an earthquake. Uh, that would uh, be one way of describing what Allison means by uh, the Thucydides trap. His question is whether we are uh, likely to have the same kind of civilizational destructive war uh, that the Athenians and the Spartans had long ago. Um, all right. Um, my talk today is based on a review essay uh, that I wrote for the Naval War College Review a few years ago when Allison's book first came out. I should mention about the book that um, uh, it's probably the most talked about book in international relations and strategy today. I go to dozens of academic conferences on these subjects and everybody's writing papers, either criticizing or defending uh, Allison, uh, primarily uh, by saying he got China wrong. Every once in a while, there's a, a Thucydides scholar around and they'll, they'll say, well, he got Thucydides wrong too. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, 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 it, it, it was part of a review essay, and I should mention what I think the responsibilities of someone who writes a review essay uh, uh, ought to be. The first is to understand the author as the author understood him or herself. That's the first task. You blow that, you blow everything else uh, uh, in, in, in the essay. You, you would also like to uh, put the author in conversation with others who write on uh, his uh, uh, or her uh, subject. And um, eventually, uh, you might point to strengths and weaknesses of the different authors in the conversation that you actually try to construct in a review essay. Now, um, uh, that means uh, my first task is to try to understand Thucydides as Thucydides understood himself. And I have a thesis, um, namely, that Thucydides was a political pathologist, a student of political disease, especially the kinds of diseases that lead to war and uh, are exacerbated by war, and especially the how those diseases manifest themselves in democracies at war. Uh, like a doctor, he diagnoses the diseases, even uses terms borrowed from ancient medicine. 
He tries to explain their causes, and he offers prognoses about uh, uh, their likely uh, outcomes. Um, now, what is the evidence for my thesis? Uh, uh, first, I would start uh, with the plague in Athens that comes to Athens in the second year of the 27-year-long Peloponnesian War. Uh, modern scholars believe that plague killed about a third of the population of Athens. Uh, and you must remember, Athens is crowded with refugees from the countryside. Those of you who remember Hurricane Katrina, uh, where uh, citizens from New Orleans were crowded inside of the Super Bowl, which could almost fit the entire population of Athens, should have that image in mind, where your brother is dying next to you, and your daughter, uh, and your wife. The Athenians are suffering from an extraordinary trauma at the beginning of this war. Indeed, many of my students have uh, uh, served in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere, and they don't always come home whole. Some of them have what we today call PTSD. And I assure you, uh, in the United States, if we lost a third of our population to a terrible plague, we would be losing 100 million Americans. It's impossible under such circumstances for our society not to have uh, 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 developed some form of PTSD. And I think you should bear that in mind when reading uh, uh, Thucydides that the Athenians are traumatized by this terrible uh, plague and that it affects their thinking uh, uh, from almost the beginning to the very end of the war. At any rate, Thucydides begins by discussing the physical symptoms of the disease so that we can recognize them in the future. In other words, he practices diagnosis. Um, and he himself caught the disease. So too did the great Athenian statesman Pericles. Thucydides barely survived the disease. Pericles uh, died of it. Um, but after talking about the horrible physical uh, symptoms of the disease, uh, uh, Thucydides then progresses to talk about uh, the social and political consequences of the disease, which I would say are the complete breakdown of, of the Athenian political order. Uh, people react to the disease in different ways. Many think that they are all suffering from a death sentence. Well, in truth, we all are, but they think they're going to die soon. And many of them think, my God, what's the, what's the use in being good? Uh, the good die along with the bad. Goodness does not pay. Why not have some fun? Why not parte? All right, parte, parte, parte. And so many Athenians become hedonists. Uh, ashes, ashes, we all fall down, as the saying goes. Uh, but not all of them do. Some move in a different direction towards religious fanaticism. Uh, interpreting certain oracles uh, uh, to believe that the plague had come to Athens as punishment for Athenian uh, uh, sins. Now, uh, in, of particular importance, Thucydides says uh, that the Athenians uh, lost all fear of, of, of the laws of God and the laws of men, with the implication that the reason most people obey the law is because of fear that they don't uh, practice virtue for its own sake, but out of fear of punishment, thus describing a, you know, a fundamental reality uh, 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 of human nature, our drive towards uh, uh, self-preservation. Uh, 
At any rate, all the religious rites in Athens begin to break down. You're supposed to give people individual funerals, but there are so many dead that if you see a funeral pyre going, uh, burning for someone else, uh, it's just so sick. You, you, you don't have time to go make your own funeral pyre, pyre, so you drag the body and throw it on somebody else's. Uh, just absolutely horrible. Uh, now, the second piece of evidence for my thesis that Thucydides was a political pathologist is the revolution in Corsaira, which begins in the third year of the Peloponnesian War. Um, it... Uh, it begins through an act of foreign meddling in another country's politics. Imagine that, that foreign meddling was not invented recently. Uh, what had happened is uh, there were some refugees from Corsaira, uh, uh, from the oligarchic party, who took shelter in Corinth, and Corinth trained them up as a kind of special forces, and they came back to Corsaira and tried to start a coup to overthrow uh, the Corsairean democracy. This phenomenon, by the way, is more common in war than many know. Uh, in 1917, for example, revolution broke out in Russia in the middle of the First World War. Uh, the Germans said, my God, we're fighting on two fronts. Wouldn't it be nice if we uh, uh, knocked Russia out of the war? Well, we can't do it militarily. How can we? Well, they discover that there's this guy with a goatee uh, hanging out in Switzerland, and his name is Vladimir Lenin. And they put him on a sealed train and send him to St. Petersburg, where he organizes the Bolsheviks for a revolution that will knock Russia out of the war uh, uh, and uh, let the crazies out, so to speak. And that's something I really want to uh, stress. There's a reason for the distinction between what we call conventional and unconventional warfare. Conventional warfare is meant to be fought uh, between armies. Unconventional warfare uh, includes using revolution as a tool of war. And it can be a very powerful tool of war, but the problem is you let the crazies out. Now, um, what happens in Chrysaira? Uh, Thucydides practices not merely diagnosis of the pathologies of civil war, of a polarization uh, in which the moderates get shot at by both sides and are usually the first to die. Uh, uh, but, but also, uh, he tries to explain the causes of the Civil War, uh, uh, which um, uh, for him are very much about the lust for power and uh, the desire for revenge. Uh, uh, you tortured my brother, I'm going to torture you twice as much. Um, and he also makes some important prognoses. This revolution that broke out in Corsaira was just the first during the Peloponnesian War. According to Thucydides, the revolution in Corsaira spread like a plague to every city in ancient Greece as Athens sponsored uh, revolutionary factions and Sparta sponsored counter-revolutionary factions. The only city that escaped this was Sparta. But at the end of the war, Athens itself is going to be afflicted by these same uh, uh, revolutionary extremist forces. Now, uh, uh, particularly important in Thucydides' account of all this is he calls it a logos. It's against reason. 
and here's some proof of the irrationality of what happens during the Civil War. The oligarchic and uh, democratic parties within the uh, uh, Corsaira are trying to exterminate each other. But they get news that a Spartan fleet is uh, approaching Corsaira. Uh, and uh, Corsaira is allied with Athens, and they're terrified that the Spartans will conquer their city. So for a moment, the Democrats and the oligarchs put their grievances aside, and they get in their ships, and they row out to fight the Spartan fleet. So there's a Democrat sitting next to an oligarch, but the Democrat looks over and says, my God, you killed my father. And the oligarch says, well, that's because you killed my son. And all of a sudden, they take their oars and they start swacking each other. All right, swack, swack. So you have civil war on the ships as they're trying to save their city. The desire for revenge trumped the desire for self-preservation. In other words, Thucydides is talking about a city going mad in the middle of a civil war. He tells you that words began to lose their customary meaning. Uh, and that's a, an important term, words losing their ordinary meaning. How and why did that happen? Um, my suggestion is um, uh, it has to do with the power of justice in human nature. That uh, justice is weak. Uh, uh, it has an influence on our behavior, uh, uh, but uh, when our desire for power or revenge or even self-preservation uh, is at stake, uh, we sacrifice justice uh, to those passions, to what we perceive to be uh, necessary. But uh, that means uh, we want to do it with a clean conscience, however. Justice is not completely powerless. We want to do it with a clean conscience. And so we adjust the meaning of words, of justice especially, to suit what we perceive as necessary and expedient. As a result, when the Democrats are exterminating the oligarchs, eventually the Democrats do win. They kill all the oligarchs while the Athenian fleet is sitting in their harbor. Uh, uh, while they're doing that, they don't call this uh, murder. They, they say this, this is an act necessary for the preservation of uh, the democracy, uh, and therefore that it is, it, it is justified. When I read these passages from Thucydides about words uh, changing their meaning in the middle of a war, I am sometimes reminded of George Orwell, who was also a student he was also a political pathologist and also a student of how words begin to change their meaning in time of war. Um, so we learn that in the Orwellian um, dystopia, war is peace, ignorance is strength, freedom is slavery. Uh, words coming to suit uh, 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 the needs of those 
who seek or wish to uh, preserve power. There is a difference, of course, Orwell's dealing with a, a modern totalitarian system, Thucydides is talking about uh, a, a, a civil war, but both are political pathologists watching how uh, war leads us to change the meaning of words to uh, suit our necessity uh, and convenience. Now, um, that leads me to quote uh, a great book, but not a Western great book. In honor of studying Eastern classics, I quote from, from uh, Sun Tzu uh, um, uh, and his art of war, saying that all war is based on deception. Now, I teach that book all the time, and usually we're focusing on Sun Tzu's account of cunning, of Trojan horses, if you wish, in the middle of a war. Uh, but I'm reminded of a very famous line, uh, uh, that truth is the first casualty of war. Believe me, I've been trying to track down the source for decades. Uh, who really said that? Truth is the first casualty of war. I've heard it ascribed to Oscar Wilde. I've heard it uh, ascribed to Shakespeare, who's the source of everything, of course. Uh, some people say it's Aeschylus. Uh, I don't know who said it, but I do believe it is true. And frequently, truth is the casualty even before a war begins. Let me say that again. Truth is a casualty even before a war begins because the political leaders have to mobilize popular and international support for their struggle. Uh, so they might tell you about weapons of mass destruction. Oops, they weren't there. Or you'll have the Gulf of Tonkin Revolution. Or you'll have President Polk saying that Americans had been killed on American soil to justify the Mexican War. Uh, it, it appears to me that it is common, quite common, for wars to begin with lies. And what I want to suggest to you is Thucydides uh, understood that about the Peloponnesian War. And you can see that in his distinction between what he calls the immediate and stated causes of the war and what he calls the truest causes of the war. Please note, by the way, when he says truest, the Greek word there is aletheia. Uh, uh, true, and it's the superlative of aletheia. That's why I think it's appropriate to translate it as truest. Some translators, including uh, Rich, uh, Richard Crawley, uh, who's used for the most common uh, uh, text for Thucydides today, translate as the real cause. Uh, the stated and immediate causes of the war were true causes. They just weren't as important as what Thucydides calls the truest cause. And, and, and that requires one to pay very careful attention to his explanation of the origins of the Peloponnesian War. Now, one way to understand that is to recognize that there was not one, but two Peloponnesian Wars. Most of his book is about the second one. And unless you're reading very carefully, you don't even know there was a first Peloponnesian War. At the end of the First Peloponnesian War, Athens and uh, Sparta <coughs> um, made a truce. Uh, not a peace, the Greek word there is fande. It means truce, not peace. Uh, uh, and under the terms of the truce, um, uh, uh, how should we put it, uh, Athens gets, to, uh, uh, gets to, to run this part of the Greek world. The colors aren't showing well. What color do you call that? 
I'm colorblind, so what do you say? Beige. All right, beige. And what color do we call this one here? Green. Green. All right. Uh, green is Sparta's sphere of influence, and beige is Athens' sphere of influence. And under the terms of the truce, uh, each is supposed to leave the other's sphere alone. And in particular, not, they're not supposed to try to seduce each other's allies to switch sides. Now, there are some uh, uh, members of Greece that weren't allied with anyone. And one of them is this city here, or this island here, Corsaira. Uh, the, the immediate causes of the Peloponnesian War, watch this. Uh, Corsaira is a colony of Corinth. And up here is a city, Epidamnus, that's a Corsaira, uh, colony of Corsaira. Uh, Corinth is grandma, Corsaira is mom, and Epidamnus is the grandchild. There's a revolution in Epidamnus, and one of the factions goes to Corsaira and says, Mom, help us out. And Mom says, Oh, you and your brother are having a fight? Settle it amongst yourselves. Go away, don't bother me. Uh, well, uh, the, the side that's about to lose says, we can't do that. Let's go to Grandma. Let's go to Corinth. Now, Grandma is angry at Mom because Mom does not pay sufficient attention, uh, respect to, uh, to Grandma. And so Grandma wants, uh, 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 wants some payback. And so Grandma sides with the grandkid up here in Apidamnus. Now Mom is furious. What are you doing messing around with my kids? All right? <laughs> Please note, a lot of this is about respect and honor. Uh, well, uh, the result of it all is Corinth and Corsaira uh, come to blows. Corsaira wins the first of the battles at sea, it, but it's worried that Corinth will come back for revenge. So it goes to Athens and says, will you be my friend? We need an ally. They'd been isolated for a long time, but they're terrified they need a friend. And the Athenians say, what's in it for me? And they said, well, we got a fleet of 100 ships. Uh, uh, if Corinth gets them, it tilts the balance of power against you. If you side with us, however, you have an overwhelming advantage at sea. The Athenians decide to make the alliance. The Athenians send a small squadron to help the Corsairians out, but it's a defensive squadron. They're not supposed to intervene unless Corsaira starts to lose in a battle against Corinth. Well, Corinth uh, starts to win. The Athenians uh, strike. Now, the problem here is Corinth is an ally of Sparta. That means the Delian League, led by Athens, has come in conflict with the Peloponnesian League, led by Sparta. Um, it leads eventually to a great debate in Sparta, uh, uh, but I want to tell you now, the debate's pure political theater. It's about the stated causes of the war. It's about who done whom wrong. It's about um, accusations against everyone. It's about the moral and, to some extent, legal justification for the war. But says Thucydides, uh, that's important, don't get me wrong, but what's fundamental here was Sparta's fear of the growing power of Athens. All that I just said to you was the trigger for the war. Indeed, I might even say it's the pretext for the war. And why do I say that? 
Um, it's because Sparta and Corinth, before the great debate in Sparta, had already made a secret agreement with uh, 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 Potidaea, which is up here on this peninsula, that if Potidaea revolted against Athens, they would invade Attica, where Athens is. In other words, they already planned to go to war. Why did they have the debate? Why have the political theater? My suggestion is they were using it to mobilize popular support for the war um, uh, and to mobilize their alliance, to get everybody psyched and ready to go to war. Um, uh, and, and so uh, there's a clear contrast between the stated causes of the war and what's really motivating Sparta. And what is motivating Sparta and Athens before this war? Um, I'm going to suggest that uh, Pericles, the great Athenian statesman, lied to the Athenians about why they were going to war. Um, at the end of book one, we learn that the Spartans issue a number of ultimatums to the Athenians, the last of which is disband your empire, free the Greeks or else. Uh, and Pericles gets up and he sounds like Winston Churchill. By the way, how many of you have, have had small children or have them? What happens if you give a mouse a cookie? <laughs> All right, it will ask for more. So Pericles says, no appeasement, no appeasement. Give the Spartans an inch and they will take a mile. Uh, he's selling the war to the Athenians as a defensive struggle to preserve their liberty. The problem, however, goes back to the alliance with Chrysaira. And we learn that the Athenians were interested in Chrysaira because they were interested in Sicily that it was a staging area to get to Sicily, meaning the Athenians are thinking about going to Sicily even before this war began. Uh, Thucydides, in making the alliance with Chrysaira, is trying to expand the empire by diplomatic means. That is, to gain the fruits of war without actually fighting a war. The Spartans and the Corinthians are on to his game. But here's the problem. Under that 30-year truce, if there were disputes between Athens and Sparta, they were meant to go to arbitration, go to the oracle at Delphi, submit your case, let him figure out uh, what to do. By the way, rumor has it the oracle took bribes. Um, but uh, 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 it, it, the, the, the problem for Sparta is technically the Athenians had not violated the treaty. Uh, it was against the spirit of the treaty, no expansion, but not against the letter. So the Spartans and the Corinthians know that if they go to arbitration, they will lose. And Pericles will achieve all of his objections without a war. It doesn't get any better than that. And they say, we're on to your game. We're not going to let you get away with it. Now, the problem for the Spartans is that they have a weak legal and moral pretext for going to war. Uh, uh, what do you do? when you think you must go to war, uh, but you know that your moral and legal pretext is weak. Make one up, all right? Make one up. So they try to sell the war as a holy war, uh, about punishing the Athenians for offenses they've committed against the gods. Later on, they say this is a war to free the Greeks from Athenian tyranny. Now, many in Greece who are subject to Athens like that idea, but that's not the reason Sparta's going to war. 
What's driving Sparta is fear that if Athens grows any, uh, any stronger, they'll be in serious trouble. And in particular, they're worried that their chief ally, Corinth, will desert them because the Corinthians threatened to do so. And that would be like, you know, West Germany saying to the United States in the middle of the Cold War, uh, uh, we're going neutral or we're going over to the other side. That was too dangerous for the Spartans. So the Spartans are lying. Both Pericles and the Spartans are lying about why they are going to war. Now, um, I, I mentioned words changing the, uh, their meaning to suit uh, uh, the necessities and uh, interests of the belligerents in this war. I, I want to suggest that the pathologies I've discussed get worse as the war goes on. And I'm going to give you three examples, uh, all of which I was lucky enough uh, uh, to study uh, with some care with David Bolton. Uh, so you may hear some echoes of uh, my studies with him long ago. The first occur, uh, concerns the trial of Plataea. Uh, Plataea was, uh, do we have it up here? Yeah, Plataea is an ally of Athens. Uh, and it's in a bitter rivalry with an ally of Sparta's, which is Thebes. Indeed, the war starts with a dirty, rotten sneak attack, a day that will live in infamy when the Thebans try to conquer Plataea. But the Plataeans hold out desperately. They're outnumbered by the Thebans, but they won't give up. Eventually, the Thebans call to Sparta and say, will you help us out? And a combined Spartan and Theban uh, siege eventually leads the, uh, the Plataeans to surrender. Um, once they've surrendered, there's a conference amongst the Spartans and the Thebans. What do we do with the uh, prisoners? Well, the Thebans hate the Plataeans. And their answer is just kill them. Just kill all the prisoners. Now, even in ancient Greece, killing all the prisoners was considered somewhat excessive. Uh, the, um, uh, and the Spartans say, wow, my God, they're torn. Their interest is to maintain their alliance with Thebes, but they want to do so with a clean conscience. So how do you kill all the prisoners with a clean conscience? Answer, give them a trial. Every Plataean goes before a Spartan court, and what the court says is, what use have you been to Sparta lately? Uh, and the Plataeans have to answer, well, not much. Therefore, you are guilty, guilty of being useless. Therefore, you will die. And every one of the prisoners is killed. And at the behest of the Thebans, uh, they bulldoze. Well, they don't have bulldozers, but they flatten the entire city, erase it from the map. What is going on here? The Spartans are acting out of self-interest, the preservation of their alliance with Thebes, but they want the clean conscience, therefore they supply a trial. Now, a second example of words changing their meaning uh, occurs in a speech by an Athenian demagogue named Cleon, often known as the most violent man in Athens. Uh, what had happened is there was a revolt by a city here called Mytilene on the island of Lesbos. And this was a very important ally of Athens. It supplied ships. Um, uh, the Athenians are furious about uh, uh, this revolt. Eventually, they are able to uh, lay siege to Mytilene. 
uh, and they're trying to starve them out. Um, uh, the oligarchs who run the city uh, are, are, are worried they can't survive, and they say, I know, why don't we distribute, distribute weapons to the people? And the people say, thanks for the weapons, now we want some food. Uh, and the oligarchs say, food? You don't need no food. And the uh, people say, well, if you don't uh, share the food with us, we will surrender the city to Athens. And the oligarchs see the handwriting on the wall. Uh, if the uh, uh, Democrats surrender the city to Athens, the Athenians will kill all the oligarchs. So they come up with a smart plan. We will surrender the city to the Athenians first. Now the city is surrendered to Athens, and there's a great debate in Athens about what to do about it. The Athenians are so angry, so furious about it, that on a, the first day of a two-day debate, the Athenians vote uh, by apparently overwhelming majorities that what they need to do is kill all the men and sell the women and children of the city into slavery. By the way, the men they're going to kill... Most of them are going to be Democrats because simply there's more poor people in a city than rich people. Uh, so they're going to kill the very people who intended to be their, their benefactors. Now, Cleon makes the argument that uh, uh, not only is this expedient because Athens, in his view, is a tyranny over its allies, uh, uh, and Athens, if it's going to be a tyrant, needs to be a good tyrant, a ruthless tyrant. Kill them all so that nobody ever dares to revolt against our empire again. Um, that's the argument from expediency. But he also makes an argument from justice, saying, you know, this was premeditated. Everybody was in on the plot. Therefore, everyone in the city is guilty. Therefore, genocide, bearing in mind that our word genocide comes from the Greek genos for race, genocide is justice. That is as Orwellian as it gets, folks. Genocide is justice. Now, there's a third example I'll give you, and it's from an Athenian diplomat named Euphemus. Um, he, uh, it, this is in, uh, uh, late in the war, and it occurs in Book 6, he gives a speech in Sicily explaining why the Athenians have come to Sicily. Why are they trying to conquer Sicily? And he says, we're here to defend Athens. <laughs> All right, we are here to defend Athens. Now, what could possibly make that plausible? Well, the answer is that Syracuse is a colony of Corinth. And uh, uh, obviously, blood ties uh, will make Syracuse uh, loyal to Corinth. And Syracuse might possibly come to dominate the whole island. And with those resources, give Corinth, and therefore Sparta, the tools necessary to defeat Athens. So if Athens is to preserve itself and its freedom, it must conquer Sicily. All right? In other words, he is trying to explain why an act of outright conquest uh, uh, to make Athens more powerful, more glorious, and richer is an act of self-defense. Um, now, um, I, 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 uh, uh, I want to talk about an exception that proves the rule here, uh, and it's the Melian Dialogue arguably the most famous part of the book. What's going on there? Well, what you notice is 
It's a private conference between Athenian ambassadors and uh, the city fathers on uh, the island of Melos. Tiny Melos uh, threatened uh, uh, with absorption into the Athenian Empire. And the Athenian message to the Melians, uh, for those of you who are Star Trek fam uh, fans, is join the Borg, all right? <laughs> join the empire or else. And the Melians say, well, look, you know, we've been neutral in this war. We've never done you any harm. Can't we just stay out of this mess? And the Athenians say, no, you can't. And the reason is you're a bad example. Your very independence tells everyone else within our empire that it's possible to be free. We cannot let anyone think it is possible to be free. So if we are to defend our empire, we must conquer you. And the Athenians say, but golly gee, that's awfully unjust. Uh, what's justice got to do with it? You know, it's, it's sort of like Tina Turner, you know, what's love got? What's justice got to do with this? <laughs> Don't you know that justice is taken into account only between equals in power? and that the strong do what they can, and the weak do what they must. In other words, we are strong, you are weak, obey, and maybe you will live. Well, as we all know, the Melians decide uh, 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 not to cave in to the Athenians. Uh, what's crucial here is, I think this is the first time in the book where the Athenians don't pay attention to justice. Um, you know, in, in, in junior year, when you're going through all those French aphorisms, there's one I remember from La Rochefoucauld, that hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue. For most of the book, people have been hypocrites, all right? What happens when people can't even be hypocrites? Uh, the Athenians are so far off the table that they've now considered concerns about justice uh, uh, to be irrelevant. I think it's very important to note the dramatic purpose uh, or place of the Melian dialogue in Thucydides' account. It's just before they decide to go to Sicily. Um, it indicates, I think, something about the state of mind of the Athenians on the eve of the expedition. Namely, that they accept no limits, moral, political, or strategic, upon their power. Uh, some might call that hubris. And as you all know from Greek tragedy, uh, hubris uh, uh, is frequently punished by the gods. And because the Athenians are defeated in Sicily, some invoke the uh, memes of Greek tragedy to see the Athenian defeat in Sicily, which is a precondition for their total defeat in the Peloponnesian War as a kind of divine punishment. My suggestion to you is that is hogwash. Uh, and the reason is I see no evidence that Thucydides believes in the gods. I'm not even sure whether he believes in divinity, uh, but certainly not in the Greek gods. And he deliberately says that the difference between me and Homer is there's no romance. There will be no divine intervention in my book. Thucydides explains this war in terms of naturalistic causes, not in terms of divine punishment. Now, uh, that does not mean that the themes of Greek tragedy are not relevant for understanding the downfall of Athens. Thucydides' point seems to be that those who, have no, uh, who accept no limits tend to self-destruct. 
And what he's really talking about is naturalistic causes that lead the Athenians to self-destruct. Now, um, this brings me to talk about uh, chiasmus. Uh, and to do so, um, I need uh, two pens and a volunteer, which will be you. Can you come up for a minute? <laughs> um, chiasmus is a Greek term for double irony. And an example of double irony uh, 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 is uh, from Sophocles' play Antigone. Uh, uh, the play occurs after Oedipus has blinded himself, after he's gone off on his journeys, and a civil war breaks out in the city of Thebes, where the sons of Oedipus uh, compete to control the city. And you should take that pen, and you must now pretend it is a sword. And I have a sword, too. In the first hundred lines of the play, Antigone or her sister Ismene, I'm not sure which, uh, describe how the two brothers died in single combat. Slowly, because we don't want to hurt each other. I want you to point your sword at my neck. Slowly, slowly, here we go. They both strike out at the same time and they both stab each other in the neck, and they both die at their brother's hand. The, you can sit down now. <laughs> um, the image here is that in the effort to destroy your enemy, you destroy yourself. It's an image of what civil war means. That is to say, civil war is suicidal. And that is what Thucydides is saying about Chrysaira. The revolution there became suicidal. But remember, the civil war spread to all of Greece, meaning all of the Greek cities were committing suicide. And if you think about it, Athens is leading a democratic faction and Sparta an oligarchic faction. You might say that the Peloponnesian War was the suicide of ancient Greece. Yes, Sparta will emerge victorious from this war, but it is so weakened by the war that it cannot withstand a new competitor, Thebes. And all of Greece is so weakened by the war that it cannot withstand uh, a new competitor, Philip of Macedon, who will conquer ancient Greece. The age of the polis is about to die, and the age of Alexander is about to begin. Because if you look at my cross here, these crossed arms, that's one brother striking out at the other, and you can see it makes an X. The term chias chiasmus comes from the Greek letter key, uh, uh, which looks like an X. Uh, the image here is of mutual uh, 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 destruction, a kind of madness that infected ancient Greece, such that the very liberty they struggled for in the ancient polis would become extinct in the age of Philip and Alexander. Now, one last thing about Thucydides here before turning to Graham Allison. Um, Thucydides excels at diagnosis. He excels at explaining causes. Um, and he's really good at prognosis, saying that the same things that happened in this war are going to happen again and again and again, so long as human nature 
remains the same. Uh, but there's one thing he doesn't do, and that's make prescriptions about how you can cure uh, uh, the sickness. The patient, humanity, appears to be incurable. Pete Seeger, folk singer from the early 1960s, once uh, wrote a song, Where Have All the Flowers Gone?, popularized by the band Peter, Paul, and Mary, uh, talking about the flowers, those who die in war. When will they ever learn, they sing. When will they ever learn? Thucydides' response, I think, is never uh, grim. All right? It means he's got a cyclical view of history. Uh, cities rise and fall in power. But even though knowledge can accumulate, even though you can have huge libraries, wisdom does not accumulate. Each generation must learn or fail to learn wisdom on its own. And just as one generation has learned to be wise, another generation has learned to be stupid. And that is the condition of humanity. All right, there's a section of my outline that I'm not going to talk about. And that's because I discovered while rehearsing that if I talked about it, I'd go on for too long. Um, so I'm going to cut it. I'm going to summarize it this way. Uh, much of modern political science since the time of Thomas Hobbes has been an effort to escape the Thucydidean cycle of history. Um, uh, there's a Hobbesian solution to the Thucydidean problem, a Lockean one, a Montesquieuan one, the Federalist Papers has one, even Immanuel Kant and George Hegel, uh, George, <laughs> George Friedrich Hegel, uh, uh, they all uh, uh, enter into discussing how do you escape this Thucydidean problem. Uh, however, that, that could take a long time, and so I'm just going to lay it out as a postulate that we could talk about during the question period, how modern political thought is trying to escape this problem. And I want to turn now to uh, Graham Allison's Thucydides trap. Um, who was Allison? Uh, well, first of all, um, uh, he studied Greek for fun. He prepped well, okay? He prepped well. And at Harvard, he kept it up, kept studying Greek. Uh, but he was in, you know, the first generation of great American social scientists during the Cold War. And so that became his specialty. And he wrote one of, a semi-classic work on the Cold War called Essence of Decision, which is about the Cuban Missile Crisis, probably the most dangerous moment during the Cold War, uh, where at least partly by luck, the US and the Soviet Union barely escaped having a nuclear exchange. Um, Allison's question is how do you uh, have these great power rivalries uh, in a manner such that small powers like Cuba or Korea or Vietnam don't drag in the great powers in the way that Corsaira and Corinth dragged in Sparta and Athens in the Peloponnesian War. Um, in uh, uh, Destined for War, uh, Allison, oh, I should change, where did I put this? Here we go. Um, in Destined for War, uh, Allison uh, uh, constructs a database of 16 examples where you have so-called status quo powers confronted by rising challenges. 
Uh, note, um, you know, he doesn't, doesn't put the Peloponnesian War up there, though obviously it's the source for it all. Note, too, that 75% of the time, 12 out of these 16 cases, the result was war. His question is what caused the war? Sure, you did have this phenomenon of rising versus status quo power, but correlation is not necessarily causation. Was it that that caused the wars, or was it something else? But 25% of the time, the result was not war. And Allison wants to know why you did not get war in those cases. Now, this is really, really important. We don't need another stinking Cold War. I spent 20 years of my life fighting in that war, and I don't want to fight another one. Um, so you really, really want to think through what causes war, because if you don't understand what causes war, you cannot produce peace. I just want to say that. You cannot produce peace unless you understand what causes war. So what Allison has done is construct a research agenda to help us think about the causes of war and peace in such a manner that we might have a chance, just a chance, to escape a war between the United States and China. Um, now, I should say something about uh, the context in which uh, Allison wrote this book. At the end of the Cold War, um, uh, as the Soviet Union uh, began to disintegrate, Many scholars said, well, who's, who's our next competitor? And they looked around and they noticed that China was rising at a phenomenal rate. And uh, they said, well, my God, we don't want another Cold War. How can we prevent such a war? And it led to two competing schools of thought. And I, I mean nothing invidious, especially to, for those of you who are in this room and are from China. Uh, but I'm going to call these two, two schools of thought panda huggers and panda sluggers. Um, I, I am originally a panda hugger. The panda huggers view is um, what we need to do is uh, 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 embrace China, uh, encourage it to trade with the United States, uh, encourage China to become so dependent for its prosperity on the United States that uh, a war with the United States would be self-destructive. And the same true for the United States. Remember what I said about chiasmus, where in your effort to destroy your enemy, you destroy yourself? You wanted to create a situation where people knew that was likely to happen beforehand so that they would not go to war. Now, there was an extreme version of panda huggers. And this version argued that free governments tend to occur uh, when you have a strong middle class. And they argued that as China developed, the middle class would become ever more influential in China. And that in time, there might be some kind of middle class democracy emerging out of China. So far, the panda huggers have been proven wrong on that point. The Chinese Communist Party wants to preserve the regime. What is the regime? It is the preservation of the Chinese Communist Party's dominance of all China. 
under no circumstances right now are they willing to uh, tolerate anything like a middle-class revolution. And that's one of the reasons why they're so terrified of what's going on in Hong Kong. Because it's not merely what's going on in Hong Kong that worries them. What worries them is that others inside China might catch the freedom disease and that the disease could weaken the control of the party within China. Now, I mentioned panda sluggers. The panda sluggers say we, the United States and the West in general have been too complacent about the rise of China. Uh, by the way, uh, going back to book one of Thucydides, that is exactly what Corinth says to Sparta. You've been too complacent about the rise of Athens. They are, they're, they're pushing the end, edge of the envelope. And you guys are old fuddy-duddies. Your system is becoming obsolete. If you do not act now, if you do not act now, it will be too late to act in the future. And so the panda sluggers are hawkish, if you wish. Uh, they point out that China's, not only is China's economy growing, but is investing an enormous amount in its navy and other military forces that it might be able to challenge the United States for at least regional hegemony in the South China Sea. Um, now, this leads me to say something about the problem of inevitability. Uh, the first thing, is nothing is more likely to make a war inevitable than think it is. Let me say that again. Nothing is more likely to make a war inevitable than thinking it is. The Corinthians are trying to convince the Spartans that war is inevitable so that they go to war early while the odds favor them. Uh, the panda sluggers, they're not quite saying war is inevitable, but they are saying it's highly probable and therefore get ready for it. Therefore, arm. Therefore, engage in an arms race uh, uh, with China. Um, I, uh, I, I brought up how thinking that war is inevitable can lead to it becoming more probable. One of the reasons the Athenians made their alliance with Corsaira, according to Thucydides, is people within Athens said, war with Sparta is inevitable, therefore we might as well have Corsaira on our side. And if that triggers the cycle of escalation leading to uh, uh, the Peloponnesian War. But strictly speaking, I'm going to argue no war is ever inevitable. Why? Because one side could always surrender. And by the way, sometimes they do. You know, the Czechs surrendered to Nazi Germany. Uh, <laughs> no war. Um, more to the point, however, it goes back to Thucydides' account of the truest cause of the Peloponnesian War. The rise of Athens and the fear this uh, uh, produced in Sparta. Um, uh, he says, compelled the Athenians, uh, uh, the Spartans, to go to war. Did Athens have to rise? Did it have to rise in the way it did? Could Athens have been satisfied with the kind of sphere of influence it had? The Athenians made a choice. And the example of that choice is, is the alliance with Corsaira, violating the spirit of the 30-year choice. In other words, the Peloponnesian War arose from choices made by the Athenians especially, but also from the Spartans. The Spartans had a choice. 
we could accommodate uh, Athens' rise to power, or uh, we could challenge it. Uh, a final consideration concerns what we call tragic inevitability. I go back to Sophocles' Antigone again. Uh, the civil war is over. Uh, the new leader, uh, Antigone's uncle, uh, uh, Creon, uh, forbids the burial of her brothers. Uh, he wants to show to everyone that civil war is an offense so dangerous to the city that anyone who commits it is outside of all religious uh, sanction. But Antigone says, no, the laws of God require burying her brothers. So long as Antigone acts from conscience, and so long as Creon stays in character, saying we are never going to go through a civil war again, they're bound to clash. It's like two cars driving at 100 miles an hour, coming straight at each other on a single-lane highway. Unless one of them swerves, there's going to be a crash. And sometimes you can see, you can predict that conflict will arise because you know the character of the people involved, of the nations involved, and you say it's just a matter of time. Having said that, Allison makes a really extraordinarily important point in his book, namely that geopolitical circumstance is not destiny. The character of nations and the policies they choose the policies they choose really matter whether you're going to get one of these catastrophic wars. And let me give you several examples. The first concerns uh, England prior to the First World War. England was the status quo power, and it faced not one but three rising powers, Germany, Japan, and the United States. And the British said, we can't take them all on. Who's our primary adversary? And they said, Germany. What do we need to do? Pull our navy home. You mean out of Asia and out of the Western Hemisphere? Sure. Let's talk to the Americans. I know. Let's appease the Americans. Please note, appeasement has a bad name uh, today because of the way the French and the British uh, sought to appease the Germans at Munich prior to the First World War. But the problem with appeasement is not the strategy, but who it is you're trying to appease. How many in this room are married? Show me your hands. How many of you practice appeasement on a daily basis? <laughs> All right. I believe I have proved my point. Some spouses can be appeased, and the marriage endures. Some spouses cannot be appeased, and the result is war. Now... <laughs> The British say, we can appease the Americans. They say, you know that Monroe Doctrine thing you guys are always talking about? We never thought much of it, but come to think of it, why don't you guys take responsibility for maritime security in the Western Hemisphere? Uh, you know, if you guys respect our interests in the Western Hemisphere, we'll protect yours in Europe. By the way, can we pull our fleet out of here? You got, you got it for us? You got my back? Thanks, Uncle Sam. Um, and they make a similar kind of argument to the Japanese so that they can concentrate their fleet uh, 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 against uh, 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 Germany. Now, uh, there is a problem, however. 
uh, and it's a big one. Um, uh, and it has to do with the character of Germany and what Graham Allison sees as the most dangerous scenario for great power war. And it's when hubris is combined with paranoia. And you get both of those phenomena in Germany prior to the First World War. Germany is growing by leaps and bounds in the same way that China is today. The Germans say, we want to dominate Mitteleuropa. We want to become a Weltmacht, a world power. We will challenge the Royal Navy at sea. And by the way, we are strong enough to do this that we don't need Russia, our traditional ally. We can do this without Russia. They dump their ally, Russia, which is now terrified of Germany. And the Russians say, we can't handle Germany all by ourselves. We need an ally. And even though they're a divine right monarchy, they look and they say, France, I know you're a republic, but can we get married? All right? And they form an alliance with France. And that means Germany has created its own worst nightmare the possibility of a two-front war out of its hubris. And that nightmare, paranoia about a two-front war, is a crucial, I would argue, the truest cause of the First World War. Because the Germans decide that if it looks like war is coming, we have to knock France out first, quickly, so that we can concentrate against Russia. And so in August 1914, the Germans un unleashed the Schlieffen Plan to knock France out of the war prior to knocking Russia out. There's only one problem, England. Uh, the Germans did not understand uh, that the, uh, uh, the British would not tolerate, would not tolerate Germany going through Belgium. They didn't want that kind of challenge in the English Channel. And so the British show up in Belgium as the Germans are marching through. And the British are just enough, just barely enough, to stop the Germans from conquering France. Um, in that sense, paranoia combined with hubris could produce the most dangerous scenario for causing a great power war. Um, now, um, I should point out that a lot of blame goes to Germany for the First World War, but they're not solely responsible for it. The Germans are totally surprised that they find the British in Belgium. They didn't expect that. They were calculating that the British would stay out of the war. An interesting question. What if, instead of sending an emergency force to France in 1914, the British had sent them in 1912? And they were stationed in France in the same way that American troops are stationed today in Germany. If the Germans had known that a war with France and Russia would also be a war with England, would they have unleashed the Schlieffen Plan? In other words, many say that the big responsibility here was the British were saying, England first! The British were saying, going isolationist at a moment when they needed to be internationalist. And had they made a commitment to the European continent, the First World War might not have happened. And why does that matter? Because just as the Peloponnesian War destroyed a civilization, so too did the First World War. 
Russia's in the middle of a revolution. Germany is going through its own revolution. Austria-Hungary is uh, dismembered. The Ottoman Empire is dismembered. And England and France are so uh, exhausted by the war that they cannot uh, 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 preserve themselves well either. A war that destroyed European civilization, in part because the British went isolationist. Why does this matter? The Second World War, Churchill called it the unnecessary war, the war that did not have to happen. Now, many of you know that at the end of the First World War, you have the Versailles Treaty, including uh, the League of Nations. And you know that President Wilson was an ardent proponent of the League of Nations, and that he was foiled by the United States Senate. And this is frequently portrayed as a quarrel between an isolationist faction and an internationalist faction in America, and the isolationist is one. That's false. It's a myth. It's not true. There's actually a third faction. It's led by former President Roosevelt and the leader of the Senate, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge. Uh, along with the Versailles Treaty was what's called the Guarantee Treaty. And the Guarantee Treaty sa says this. If Germany tries to attack France again, England will back up France on the condition that the United States will back up both England and France. Um, when the Senate rejected the Versailles Treaty, it also rejected the Guarantee Treaty. And what was the Guarantee Treaty? It's a proto-NATO, a proto-North Atlantic Treaty Organization meant to deter Germany from starting another world war. But when the US backs out of the Versailles Treaty, it backs out of the Guarantee Treaty. The British say to France, the US don't got our back, we don't got yours. And France looks around and says, we're all alone, all right? We are all alone. We are easy pickings for uh, uh, the, the Germans. You have to ask yourself, had the United States committed to the Guarantee Treaty, would Germany have started the Second World War? Well, people who lived through that war learned a lesson that to deter war, you had to have a permanent presence abroad. And that lesson is embodied in the charter of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, where everyone came to understand that the peace of Europe depended on everyone banding together to deter the Soviet Union. And you should note, there was no World War III in part because what we came to call the West banded together to deter aggression. Um, what does this all mean? Um, I was once teaching uh, a number of Air Force officers at an ICM, ICBM base in North Dakota, and believe me, it was cold. Um, and we were reading Thucydides. Imagine that, reading Thucydides inside a nuclear missile silo. Um, and uh, we were talking about Thucydides and how just about everything that you see in war occurs in other wars. And one of the officers said, well, what about nukes? Well, he got me there. No nukes 2,500 years ago. And I said, but what about the Melian Dialogue? 
Everyone talks about the Athenians saying uh, uh, the, the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must, but they forget the first half of uh, what Thucydides, uh, the Athenians were saying there. They say justice is respected only between equals in power. In what kind of power? In the power to destroy each other. People pay attention to justice in international politics, especially when they know that chiasmus would be their future if they went to war. And so I said to this nuclear officer, we call them nukes in the military, I said to the nuke, the foundation of your strategy is in the Melian dialogue, that if you want to avoid war, you must make war mad. That brings me now to talking about how to prevent a war between the United States and China. To do that, you have to think about the causes of war. One way to do so is to pretend you're a detective trying to solve a murder case. Well, what do detectives want to know? They want to know who had the means to commit the crime, who had the motive, and who had the opportunity. No crime unless all three come together. Um, China and the United States have the means for a great war. Indeed, I don't mean to scare you, although I talk with my officers about it all the time. Uh, China has sufficient ballistic and accurate ballistic missiles to destroy every American military base in the Far East in 24 hours. They can do it. No problem. Um, that might scare you. But I should point out to you, we've been through this before. When I was a young soldier in Europe, we knew the Soviet Union could destroy our forces, most of our forces with missiles in 24 hours. But there was no war. We kept our heads. Uh, we did not have to be stable geniuses. It was sufficient to be stable, all right? It was sufficient to be stable. We kept our heads because we know that though the Soviets could do that to us, we could do that to them. That war would be mutual suicide. Now, um, I should point out that making war mutually suicidal is a great way to prevent war, but it's not sufficient. In 1912, uh, a British historian named Norman Angel wrote a book saying that war amongst the great powers of Europe would be suicidal. It will bankrupt our countries, destroy our economies, millions would be dead. Therefore, he said, there won't be a war. It would be irrational to go to war. Two years later, all of Europe went to war. <laughs> Incredible irony. What did he leave out of his calculus? Well, Thucydides talks about three fundamental passions driving human nature, driving empires, driving folks towards war, fear, honor, and gain. You can make war too costly. Um, and that is very important as a restraint upon going to war. And you're trying to make it irrational to go to war. But the problem is some forces in human nature might not be entirely rational. And one of them, which Hobbes treated as the most warlike of the human passions, is the drive for honor. And the drive for honor is deeply linked to what we call nationalism today. We're number one. We're number one going all the way back to Homer and Achilles, if you wish. 
all right? Because Achilles was clearly number one. Um, that is something that these strategies of chiasmus uh, are not sufficient uh, uh, to control. Um, nonetheless, it is helpful to note that a war between the United States and China would be irrational. China also has some motives for going to war, and that requires paying attention to Chinese history. For most of uh, China's history, it's been the number one power in the world. It was really only uh, in the 18th century that it was dethroned from that position. And it went through a century of humiliation at the, uh, the hands of Western powers, devouring up China, and of Japan devouring China. And they have said, never again. Never again will we allow that to happen to our country. And that's entirely reasonable. Um, they want to be number one again. You read Chinese strategic literature, it's all about becoming the greatest power in the world. Uh, so it has a motive to do so. The U.S. motive here is weaker, I would say, from a rational point of view. Yes, we concern, we're concerned about our allies in the region. Yes, um, uh, we want freedom of the seas. But the reality is, if the Chinese build a military base on an atoll in the middle of the South China Sea, a pile of guano, who on earth would say it's worth going to war over? Who here wants to go to war for a pile of bird poop? All right? And so our motives in that respect are weaker. And the Chinese know that. And they're practicing a version of salami tactics, taking one atoll at a time, staying deliberately below the threshold of what would trigger a military response from the United States. My suggestion is they're probably going to succeed at that. And that means the United States is going to have to negotiate with China. Uh, and we're, it's going to be very, very difficult because we want to do so in a manner that does uh, not mean we are abandoning our allies. A truly uh, extraordinary diplomatic challenge. Finally, I would point about opportunities uh, for going to war, flashpoints. The flashpoints would be like Corsaira and Corinth going to war in a manner that eventually dragged in Sparta and Athens. The most obvious one is Taiwan, uh, which the Chinese see as part of one China. Uh, uh, the Taiwanese uh, would like independence. The U.S. message to Taiwan is if you declare independence, you're on your own, Charlie, because we know that will trigger a war with China. But we send a message to China. Hey, if you, you settle your quarrel with Taiwan peacefully, and we'll stay out of it. But if you try to conquer Taiwan, you may have to reckon with Uncle Sam. The problem is, earlier on, before China became a great naval power, it was easier for us to say that. China is now capable of uh, challenging the U.S. In, uh, around Taiwan, and it's not so clear that the U.S. is, is, is capable uh, of carrying through on its threat. Um, another flashpoint is North Korea. Uh, that regime can't last forever. People wonder, what happens if the North Korean regime collapses? There are nuclear weapons there. South Korea, imagine a civil war in Korea, North Korea, where one general has a nuke and another general has a nuke. 
Talk about chiasmus, folks, all right? Uh, a, a civil war with nuclear weapons. China doesn't want that to happen, nor does South Korea. So it's not at all inconceivable that South Korea and China might move into North Korea to police up, gather up those nuclear weapons. And then the question is, what, what will the United States do in, in such a situation? Um, all of these problems, these crises, require the essence of diplomacy in order to be resolved. Uh, they require extraordinary diplomatic skill. And uh, so uh, this leads me to quote Pericles, who said to the Athenians before the Peloponnesian War began that um, he feared Athenian blunders more than he did the Spartans. He saw something self-destructive in the character of Athenian democracy, arguing that the Athenians needed restraint. They shouldn't fight the Spartans outside the walls, and they shouldn't undertake expeditions to conquer Sicily, at least until they have finished off the Spartans. Well, Pericles dies, and eventually they do that. A lack of self-restraint uh, uh, in the Athenians. Uh, this suggests to me uh, uh, that sometimes democracies are their own worst enemies. That our worst problem is not China, but us. And I, I want to uh, now uh, make my own criticism of Graham Allison, though I admire his work greatly. He's assuming the United States is a status quo power. And I'm going to prove that he's wrong. Does anybody have a dollar bill in their pocket? Anybody? Pull it out. First come, first serve. You got a dollar bill? They don't have to struggle now. Uh, no, no, I need your help. Can you read the back of the dollar bill, the Latin underneath the pyramid? <laughs> Nor can I. No, oh, you're translating it. Say the Latin first. Novus Ordo Seclorum. New World Order. That has been on the back of the United States dollar bill since 1776. The United States from its founding has been a revolutionary, revisionist power seeking to transform its own image, the world in its own image. The big question has always been, do we do it by force of arms or by force of the American example? The problem with the United States and China today, it's less about a status quo power versus uh, a, 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 a revisionist power, but possibly two revisionist powers. And if that's true, we are in a far more dangerous situation than Graham Allison uh, uh, suggested. Now, uh, how do you confront that problem where the United States might be its own uh, worst enemy? And the answer is restraint uh, as a beginning. Uh, that you avoid doing anything unnecessarily provocative in this circumstance. Uh, Another part of the answer is to say um, uh, we need 
particular kind of leadership uh, in the United States today. And it's not the leadership we have. Uh, we need leaders who build and sustain coalitions. Why has there been no war between the United States and Japan and Germany since 1945? Why? Well, in part because we built a liberal democratic coalition of free trading nations that grew rich and secure and free together. That is the essence of America's strategic success since 1945. Thus, it is totally insane, absolutely crazy, to start trade wars with your allies at the same time that you're starting a trade war with China. Why throw away your most important strategic asset and try to start a big fight with China at the same time? In this respect, I believe the United States under its current leadership is its own worst enemy. And we are not going to change that problem until we get a different kind of leadership. Um, I could go on, but I'm probably over time, and so I'm going to stop right here. <laughs>